Welcome back to the Four Gardens Podcast. I'm Jake Ifshin. Four Gardens is an approach to cultivate a life of balance, joy, and abundance by focusing on four key areas. On this show, I talk to people inspiring me in the four gardens of health, nature, creativity, and service. To learn more, go to fourgardenspodcast.com and follow at Four Gardens Podcast on Instagram. Make sure to like and subscribe to hear new episodes and support this project. If you're enjoying, enjoying listening to the podcast, take a minute to check out our YouTube channel, which features short video clips from the podcast as well as engaging original content. My guest today is Leslie Young. Leslie has been a progressive educator in independent schools for 16 years. She is passionate about interdisciplinary education, experiential education, community engagement, mindfulness, and global competency. Career highlights include starting a garden and food justice community engagement program, organizing professional development in Malawi, serving as a teacher in residence at the Smithsonian Freer Sackler Museum of Asian Art, and helping found a school. She's also the author of two books. I'm grateful to have been Leslie's collaborator on the garden program I mentioned before. At that time, she was a teacher at my alma mater, Sidwell Friends Middle School. We built a partnership between my business, Engaged Ecology, and the school that supported an on-site food garden and community-wide engagement with food justice and urban agriculture movement. I'm excited to talk with Leslie Young. Let's jump right in. Leslie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for asking me. It's such a pleasure to like be a part of your new project. Very, very cool. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. And this has been my big inspiration lately. And you know, my inspirations before were a lot about connecting communities to nature and gardening. And you were a great collaborator with me. On that. That's how we really built our friendship was starting these gardens at Sidwell Friends Middle School. I'd love to just reflect on that with you for a minute. Yes, that would be, that was such a great, that was such a great project. That was such a great teaching opportunity. So um, it, it's something that I definitely look at as um, a big achievement in, in teaching, uh, in my teaching career and um, a, a project that for me, like models what was really possible. Yeah, we overcame some challenges to get that up and running. And I just love what we brought to the children and uh, in that school and created, especially because you know, it was my school and I, didn't, I, I wasn't connected to gardening in my own, where my food came from when I was at Sidwell. So it was this chance to think about what would I in seventh grade have really loved, to, what gift do I want to give myself in seventh grade? So it felt like going back in time in a way and adding something to my own experience that would have really nourished me at that time and inspired me. So that was, that was extra cool. And also just thankful that we always have champions in communities, whether it's like another teacher or a, a, a leader in the community. And you really brought us in and, and had this incredible tenacity in that program and vision you brought to make that happen. And so I'll always be grateful for that, the work we did. Well, I think all of that tenacity came from knowing that I was working with like the perfect partner. Um, you being an alum was huge. You know, I think whenever we're able to bring alum back onto campus and 
you know, show kids that it's about getting out there and doing something that you're passionate about and then always staying connected to the communities that sort of raise you. Um, I think that that really inspires them and it makes them feel proud. It makes them feel like they're a part of a community. And then you are just so tapped into what makes gardens work. And, you know, people, it's like, it's such a no brainer, right? Every school should have a garden, but gardens at schools are a lot of work. And, you know, I mean, some of the challenges were things like, where is the water going to come from, right? And the place where the garden could be and the place where the water was were not the same thing at all. Um, and needing to like be really creative, but those also being opportunities to say to the kids, the adults have a really authentic issue. <laughs> Do you have any ideas? Um, and I think that was really engaging for them too, to sort of see that there are these legitimate issues, legitimate problems, things that they were going to have to help solve and take care of. Um, and that helped them invest in it even, even more. So you know, I definitely learned a lot through that project about how important gardens are in schools, how hard it is to start one, how um, it's even harder to maintain one, but also the joy it can really bring students, the authentic learning opportunities it brings students, and just how much value um, plants have in our lives um, and on our school campuses. So it's something I feel really enthusiastic about um, and learned a lot from as well. Yeah, the technical challenges were certainly there. And it was beautiful the way children got involved with sourcing the water and keeping the garden alive too. So that was very real. We weren't, we weren't growing in the ground. We created uh, above ground gardens that were made from some from rec recycled materials, other from very modular gardening uh, techniques. Uh, we worked with some other partners too to get that garden to really live on a small strip of grass next to a lot of pavement. So it was, it was kind of a unique little spot we did it in. But on top of that, there was this other challenge we worked on together, which was you really helped me with this, that side, but also the side of community organizing too, which is an interesting question of how do you bring a community get together to care for something that's alive? And how do you get more, not just your class involved, but classes across the school involved? And some of the highlights were finding ways to get the, like one answer was to get it into their curriculum too. And one of my highlights was doing that program on uh, medieval gardening and the herbs and medicines of medieval times to support a history class, yeah. get them engaged. And so you kind of made that bridge for us and finding those creative ways to connect it to curriculum was also a highlight of that project for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it just also underscores, you know, when we want to teach content um, such as, you know, medieval a concept of just medieval life and the everyday um, needs of people living in medieval times, tapping into something that students can touch and feel and smell and even taste. Um, I feel like they made pesto at one point, um, for, you know, cooking with the things that they were growing. It just brings it all alive for students. And then the content actually sits further inside of them um, and they learn it more authentically and in and, and a more solidified way. So I think these things like really support one another. Um, and it takes work. It takes a lot more work sometimes to, to teach that way, but the learning is, is so worth it. Yeah, it's, it's so worth it. And uh, the podcast actually before this too, is a lot about um, nature education. People listening to this also want to encourage them to check out Martha Pasquale's episode, excited to make the connection 
with you and her in the future. But it is this extra. We talk a lot about the need uh, that we're facing, that children are facing now and communities are facing around nature connection and gardening and adventure, problem solving, um, having like genuine experiences of, of each of these areas. So I've seen you, you I listed some of the amazing teaching uh, highlights in your career so far around Malawi, around, uh, of course, the gardening program, around some of the work you've done with art and on Sackler Freer. Um, but I'd love to think about, ask you about the mission behind that for you, the passion behind that uh, with teaching. Like what really, with education, is, your, is the thing that like lights you up and sharpens your focus, I would say, when it comes to teaching and education? Mm. So, you know, during the pandemic, I think what was really highlighted for people was the essential work that teachers do every day. And that had some pros, you know, highlighting the importance of teachers, highlighting the needs of teachers, highlighting the areas in which we are and are not supported, um, highlighting the inequities and inequalities um, and getting that attention on our educational system that I think we really need. At the same time, I think what what I want to bring to the forefront of the conversation through all of these projects is the craft of teaching. Um, <coughs> I know that we are essential to the economy. I know we allow families to go to work. I know we allow for children to have safe places to receive all sorts of services. Um, and at the same time, the things that we do in terms of building relationships um, between students, between teachers, between content, between skill sets, um, that's really a craft. Um, and I think of it as both an art and a science. Um, and over the years, the ways I've developed um, professionally have been so incredibly enriching. Um, but I've had to take a lot of control over my career and over my craft to ensure that that, that growth was happening. Um, teachers are retiring and quitting at really alarming rates. And it is projected outward as a career that can lead to a great deal of burnout, that is extremely stressful, that it can is unfulfilling. Um, and I think that's a lot of people's experiences. Um, that has not been my experience. And so I think in this moment of time, what I feel really passionate about is talking about the way that teaching feeds me, um, the way that it fuels my imagination and my creativity the way that it's made me a more compassionate person, the way that it allows me to explore all sorts of things, um, to understand perspectives in a sort of multi-generational sense. I'm collaborating with colleagues who are older than me and have been teaching for decades more than I have. And I'm also working with children who are coming up under very different circumstances than I did. And the intergenerational conversations that are happening in schools, I think just have a lot to to tell people, you know? So I think what I feel really passionate about right now is, is highlighting the work of teachers, the true work of teachers, the things that we're really doing in our classrooms, um, honoring that, lifting that up, and just really celebrating the craft that is, that is teaching. That's what I have in my 16th year really fallen back in love with, um, that, that craft piece. And so on my website, I talk a lot about teach, reflect, learn. That the act of teaching leads to a lot of material to sit 
and reflect on. Um, and that reflection process then again helps you learn so much about yourself, about other people, about topics and skills and our brains and our hearts. Um, and just that cycle can just be really generative. It can be really creative. It can be really fulfilling. Um, and I hope that in the future, the conversation shifts so that we can find more people who want to be like us teaching in schools um, with kids and um, just 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 sort of have that conversation shift a little bit from from where it has it has taken a turn. Yeah, thank you for shifting that conversation around teaching and education. I think there needs to be a big shift around that. And I valuing hearing about your perspective on the craft and on what teaching brings to you in your life too. I was hearing that and what you were sharing that teaching and the craft of teaching has become a way for you to interface with different generations, with creativity, with activism too, I imagine, and so many other, uh, other, other parts of people with different backgrounds from different countries different segments of this country. And so I think that to me, it's really reminding me that it's more than just a job. It's more than I'm hearing how it is also philosophy and a lifestyle too goes with teaching. I think it has to be, I think it has to be more than a job because if it's just a job, it is all of those draining things. Um, but I think when you can understand it as a philosophy, as a way of life, as an approach. It's it's less about sort of the logistical pieces and more about your approach to it. And the logistical pieces change within a career over time. And my logistics have changed in my career over time. But I found that, you know, the through line um, with all of the different experiences that I've had have um, been a passion for people have been a passion for knowledge and have been a passion for, for creativity. After we worked together on the gardening project, you were part of starting a school. You were on a team that was starting a school. And I, I think that's an interesting way to move forward in the conversation, just to hear the general lessons of something I've always been interested in is being part of a school starting. And so just some of, I'll have a few uh, pieces from that experience that, uh, help maybe help deepen your perspective around education and the different intricacies involved delivering that for children, providing that for communities. Yeah. So, um, you know, my experience as a founding faculty member at a school is, is still pretty fresh. And the school has been open for three years. I was there for the first year and part of the founding faculty. I'm no longer there um, for various reasons. Um, but that year of teaching, I describe as probably the best I ever had in my life. I was brought on to be part of a team that had a really specific mission. And I think for me, it underscored the need for schools to have missions, to be mission focused, to be clear in communicating that mission, um, and for everybody in the building to really be on board with the goals. Um, as I've seen different charter schools pop up and different creative public schools pop up, um, what I've been really excited to to see with those is is the mission that they put forward um, and thinking about what are the different ways in which people can approach education with children. And there are all these different visions out there. And so what was wonderful about founding the school was I found a group of people and I found a school and it had families and children who believed in education 
um, in a similar way that I did. And so as I was going in and teaching, I could envision what curriculum would needed. I could envision what books we were going to read, what activities we were going to do. And I was working with a team of people who, who again, just were really aligned with, with my teaching philosophies. And I hadn't had that before. Um, at, at the more traditional schools that I've taught at, various people come together and they have different teaching practices and philosophies. And, you know, over time, because these are generally very old schools, over time they develop and you come in and you're new and you say, so I have these ideas and it's, it's a lot of negotiation. It's a lot of compromise. Um, and it was really wonderful to, to have that year of teaching with all of that already resolved. Um, and it was just about moving the work forward. It was just about moving the kids forward. And because we were a, a startup, everybody on board had this very adventurous spirit and they were willing to like be in the dirt with you, figuring it out. It was okay to take risks. We were encouraged to take risks. Um, we were encouraged to think outside of the box. Um, and I just hadn't really had that kind of freedom before. And it taught me a lot about what I wanted to do and also what I could do. I, I don't think I, I knew that before. I, I had the chance to work at that school. And after working there, I was really clear about who I was as a teacher, who I wanted to be as a teacher, um, and who I could be as a teacher. And that was, that was a great gift. Um, I'll always be thankful for that. I'm curious now hearing hearing that experience what where it took you out of that because I haven't really caught up with you in the last year or so and wanting to hear too what's alive for you right now with education coming off those lessons and I know some of the other chapters in your career and um yeah I'm interested in what's what's alive right now in your, in your teaching yeah so I think what has come alive for me out of that experience is just my commitment to the classroom so a lot of people think that a teacher starting out has this sort of vertical ladder vision um, of of how their life will unfold. And it sort of ends with being an administrator or a principal, right? You're going to work your way up. And I think a lot of people have the sense, well, if you're teaching after such and such a time, then you just haven't sort of risen to the level of administration that you need to. Um, and people will talk about that in terms of like needing to make more money or needing to have different job securities. And, and it can be very corporate in that way to me. And I think what I was given was this vision of my career as a classroom teacher. Um, I learned that I could lead from the classroom, that those leadership roles, those leadership visions could come while I was working in the classroom and interfacing with children every day, which is really the part of the role that that I love the most. I, I love engaging with the students and that's where I learn the most. So I never want that to to sort of be, I don't want that to be lessened in my teaching career. I don't want less time with students. I, I want more time with students actually, um, is what I found out. Um, and then it, it allowed me to envision some some other pieces. What What might I do outside of the classroom to support my teaching career? Um, but also um, to stretch me in new ways. And, and that's when I began to envision myself as a writer. Honestly, um, the school had a blog and I had an idea for an article. And I, I hadn't done this before. I hadn't offered to write an article for a publication, um, but I did. And I realized I loved that. 
I loved that. I loved talking about what we did. I loved communicating about what we did. And I was like, wow, this is, this is really cool. And then I started a blog after that to um, further sort of invest in some of the ideas I was having about teachers to, to connect with other teachers. Um, And so now, now I have sort of this vision of myself as a teacher within a school, but also in the rest of my life that there um, are these other creative pieces happening with the blog. Um, now with the books, I'm starting to branch out into some publishing opportunities. Um, and and that's just really opened up a, a new frontier of how I can communicate about my teaching, communicate with other teachers, with other creators, with other educational activists um, from a position within the classroom. And that's just, that's been really exciting for me. I really enjoyed your blog. I want to talk about that in a minute too. And just wanting to go a little deeper with this idea that you're both still in the classroom, still active as a teacher, and yet transmitting ideas, developing ideas, inspiring other teachers, part of a collective professional development, you could say, because as a writer now, which is beautiful. And that's happening. Talk a little bit more about, please, about how that's intermingled with your life as a teacher. Because I, I notice in your blog, for instance, that you are speaking to the seasonal, the, the challenge, the, what's coming up in this time as a teacher in COVID, as a teacher, you, know, you have a blog about Kwanzaa, I really enjoyed with uh, too, t- talking about, um, like you're, you're speaking right to the moment, I feel like a lot in your life as a teacher, it feels very present to me. So yeah, that's exactly what it's about. It's that reflection piece. Um, it's an op. I, I feel like the blog is absolutely an opportunity for me to take what's happening in the classroom and process, right? And I found that writing is a really incredible way to process your experiences. I've never been a journaler. I do not like my journal voice. You know, I I don't have a journaling voice that I enjoy, and that's never been something that I could do. But I do like to sit down and think about what happened today, what happened this week, what did I teach, how did it go, what worked, what surprised me, what completely failed and and I need to absolutely change and sometimes even apologize for, right? If I've assigned too much homework and, you know, they came in all stressed out and they didn't finish everything, then I have to really like scale back and say, okay. How can I apologize and move forward with with students and tell them that I'm thinking about them and doing this reflection on the back end and then coming to them with sort of some new, fresh, more student-centered ideas? I feel like the blog really gives me that space. Um, Additionally, I think it's really good for teachers to record what they do. I think it's really important for us to share what we do. Each classroom is a whole little world. And so much of what we do every day does not get documented and does not get shared. But the more that we as teachers share with one another, the more ideas we have, the more variations there are. Um, I, I just think that that's really wonderful. And so I've been spending a lot of time on Instagram lately. There are some really good Facebook groups. Um, there are teachers who have really terrific YouTube channels. But I think um, the way that teachers are starting to use blogs, social media, um, and just really connecting with one another. Of course, this has been even heightened um, out, out of the pandemic since we're not attending uh, conferences regularly and all of that like we used to. I, I just think that that's a, a really wonderful way to to tell people what we do, why we do it, how we do it, 
um, and be reflective in that process so that we're not just sharing, but we're learning as well. This piece really hits home for me. My background, a lot of my educational work was from Reggio, the Reggio Emilia approach, working in early childhood for a number of years before we gardened. That's where I got my love of gardening was from the children uh, as a teacher. And one of the big uh, principles of the approach or practices is documentation. We talk about it a lot in that approach. And so I'm really resonating with this. It's becoming my own. You talked about teaching, offering us lessons to live by. And that for me, you, know, you notice now I have a podcast. I'm also a writer and I'm, I'm really inspired by the way you described. I want that for all people to bring awareness to what we're doing. Why are we doing it? What does it feel like? We need those storytellers and that transmission of knowledge. And in the Reggio approach too, we played this role for children. It considers too, documentation is visible and accessible to children. It's also on other levels, visible and accessible to parents and community wide. Because we are, as a teacher, I see it, not just my, I see it, but seen as the, uh, the collective memory holder in a way too. We are remembering for the community. We are remembering for the class. What did we learn last week? What about a month ago? What, and, and also imagining forward together. So, Children, because children will keep us present too. We, we need to stay present as adults. They'll keep us present. But there is a real important mindful way to approach the past and the future uh, and the present as a storyteller, I think, um, in the classroom that I really feel like you're embodying as a blogger, uh, as, a, as a writer too. So thank you for doing that. It's really cool. Oh my gosh. I really love that idea of the documentation as it relates to storytelling. Um, about your classroom or about your practice or about the teaching career in general. I, I really love that. Um, and I also really appreciate what you said about transparency, transparency with families, transparency with administration, transparency with students. Um, sometimes we are afraid to share what we're doing because there can be a lot of criticism and a lot of teachers are really facing and grappling with that in problematic ways right now. Um, I feel very fortunate to work in a supportive community that really honors what I do and is aligned with the way that I teach. And so I'm not getting all of that pushback at all. But I know there are teachers who are, and it, it can be really scary to be transparent. At the same time, um, I think we owe it to ourselves to to honor what we feel and what we think. Um, and to put it out there. So I, I really appreciate both of those those items. Thank you. And it seems like the transparency, you're welcome, can be um, a way to bring some of the changes that we want to see in the system by just being real about having real te real teachers as real protagonists that we're following, that are, are making a difference, that are accessible, even just within the community. That was one of the nice things about the Reggio Approach School I uh, worked with was that we shared a blog every day from our classroom. It ended up being a lot of work, but uh, I felt very connected to the families who would share the blog. It became, became a beautiful out outlet to have that blog uh, going. So I think that's, yeah, I'm curious about um, about how that is going gonna, is gonna to grow for you now too, because I also read that you're in the process of releasing a book. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So it's in process. There's two two separate projects that, that I was working on um, that came to fruition in 2021 and sort of are in production in 2022 and we were released in 2023. The thing about traditionally publishing your work um, is that it takes a long time and it'll be done on the publisher's timeline, uh, which is fine. I'm, I, 
I think being a teacher who also is a writer has allowed me to just sit back and enjoy the process as it unfolds. Um, and I'm, I'm really trying to do that. Just whatever is happening is happening. But yeah, so there's there's two projects that that I have in, in process right now. Um, the first is a book I co-wrote with my mentor, Monica Edinger. We met 16 years ago at the Dalton School. She hired me as a fourth grade assistant teacher um, and has just really been a, a guiding light in my practice and a really encouraging supporter who who helped me build my confidence early on. And I really think that's made all the difference. A great mentor just cheers you on, helps you find the resources that you need, encourages you, talks with you, reflects with you. Um, and Monica has has done all of that for, for a really long time. I, I very much cherish our friendship and it's exciting that we have this working relationship as well. So back in 2018, she had this really wonderful idea to take the um, narrative of Olada Equiano, who is a 17th uh, an 18th century uh, British abolitionist. Um, he is captured and enslaved as a young boy. He is eventually sold to a sailor and a um, an officer in the British army. And he, he goes to war um, on ships. And he, through that experience, gains a lot of different skills that eventually allow him to buy his own freedom. Um, and he has a, his narrative has a lot of twists and turns. His life has a lot of twists and turns. But ultimately, he is able to sort of completely divest himself um, from the slave trade and sort of the merchant and sailor lifestyle and becomes a, a British abolitionist. Um, and at the time was one of the most well-known black people probably in the world um, and certainly in, in England um, at that time. And so he wrote a book. His book became the first bestseller uh, by a black person. And he maintained his own rights, his own publishing rights, just all this really cool, cool stuff about him. Um, and so we took that narrative, which is a primary source um, from that time and a well-known primary source, and we translated it into a verse novel for middle school students. So we're really excited for this book to be um, a way for teachers and students and for families to talk about the global slave trade, not just as an American thing, but as a truly global um, economic and uh, political um, just system, right? And to talk about the life of an extraordinary person um, who has an incredible adventure and ultimately decides to use his life and his his opportunities to to try and free other people, um, to try and liberate other people. Um, we just really think his story has a lot of fantastic lessons for middle school students now, and, and we wanted to make it accessible to them because the primary source is just it's written in you know 18th century language and is, is a challenging text. So we're hoping that this gets his story into the hands of of more students. Um, the second project is a picture book, and that actually came about because of a contest. So Cherry Lake Publishing and Sleeping Bear Press held a contest. It was their inaugural um, Own Stories, Own Voices uh, contest, and they asked for people to submit their stories, their picture books, um, their middle grade novels, 
And I did. I had an idea for a story. It's based on my son and his love of trains. And I sent it in. And then during the summer, they notified me that I was actually a grand prize winner. I was I was shocked. I just sent the story in. I have not sort of formally trained in picture book writing, but I had written a book that I would love to read my son at bedtime. And I I'm really excited that that book is going to be out in the world and that I'll be able to do that. So that's the the other opportunity that is um, on the table. It's called the picture book is called A Train Allen. Um, the middle school novel about Oladak Miano. The the title is in flux right now, but both of those books will be available in 2023, and I'm just super excited that those are are going to be available soon. I'm so pleased by this news to hear about these projects. Both sound really inspiring. Uh, I definitely want to help. Uh, follow along and promote as the books are released Thank next you. year. Maybe we can do it in part two and talk about the more of collaboration because yeah, these are incredible. And that's an incredible story of the first book you described too, of, of making that conversation of the global uh, slave trade and bringing more, uh, br bringing a, it's another tool, another lived experience to middle school teachers and families and children to have these hard conversations and bring them to life. So Really cool, and like, and just congratulations on winning too the contest and getting the second book in the hands of, of many families. I'm sure that will cherish it as well too. So really cool, really cool stuff, Leslie. Thank you. I um want to shift to a little bit too uh, after celebrating you here. If you're not, if you're if you're, watch, if you're listening to the podcast, I got a big smile hearing this news about the books, uh, and I want to shift a little too. Talk more about your anti-racism work. So I've known you as someone who's been involved and active in anti-racism. So yeah, would you um, share with our audience and bring me up to date a little too on, in addition to being an author that's supporting it with your work how, and, and a teacher, how else have you been engaged? In yeah, so I, as a teacher, I think it is about infusing that into everything that we do. Um, I work at a school, we can make a lot of choices and a lot of decisions. Um, but really, it comes down to that anti-racist perspective being infused in the practice every day, in their interactions with students, um, in the conversations that we have, in the ways that we have those conversations. Um, and that just really approaching education with a belief that through our relationships with kids, we can raise and continue to raise generations of people who believe that other people are valuable. Other people who don't look like you, who don't come from your same background, who don't have things in common with you are, are valuable and are deserving of your time, of your attention, of your care, and of your compassion. And I really believe that starts in our schools and it starts in our classrooms. Um, and honoring every single voice um, in our classrooms and constantly as a, as a teacher, really looking for ways to do that and looking for ways to lift up individual students, to lift up groups of students and to get them face to face talking to one another. Um, right now, we are teaching Night by Ellie Wiesel, which is not typically thought of as a middle school text, but we're turning it into one. Um, we have very mature students and we have a classroom culture that allows us to talk about hard topics and read hard books together. 
Um, and we have chosen to focus not on sort of writing in response to the books, although we're doing some of that. But every Friday, um, we end our classes with conversation, with a discussion. Um, and the discussion is about giving students opportunities to either stand up and sort of put forth their ideas or to give other students more space, but generally to create this, this brave space together um, where we're talking about hard things on which we might have um, different perspectives or might come with different levels of information or might have questions that we're embarrassed to ask about and, and just making it okay to have these conversations together. And I think what we're building is the capability in our students to have civil discourse, um, which I feel like I'm learning is really essential in anti-racism work. Um, it's not about me yelling at anybody or um, trying to convince or bargain that that I'm valuable to to another person or that you're valuable. We're not going to argue about that. Um, but it's about creating a space where people can be in conversation and learn one another's stories um, and listen and just listen. We've stopped listening to each other. Um, and I think that listening really has to be at the heart of anti-racism work as well. Um, in addition to sort of giving students opportunities to to think about sort of their micro relationships and then also sort of systemic pieces. Um, in my personal life, what I've become really interested in is, is how race is being talked about in Montgomery County. So I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, and I become part of the Montgomery County Lynching Memorial Project. And that is a partner organization with EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative, um, located in Montgomery, Alabama, that was founded by Brian Stevenson, who is an incredible activist um, and lawyer and who has done so much to improve and bring more equity to our justice system. Um, and he and his team are fighting for that every day. Um, one of the things that they have taken on is documenting lynchings in America, extrajudicial, extrajudicial lynchings in America, the lynchings that sort of were about terrorizing communities um, through lynchings of men, women, and children. Um, these were often um, related to court cases, but not always. And they were about groups of citizens, white citizens, going into communities, kidnapping people and murdering them before they had the opportunity for, for due process or before there had been any evidence collected or before there had been any proof that, that they were involved in anything at all. So um, they have documented uh, lynchings across the country and they provide that information to counties and counties can take up the charge to begin the process of remembrance and reconciliation. So in Montgomery County, we have three lynchings to account for. Um, they happened in the 1800s, the late 1800s, and they are an opportunity for Montgomery County to reckon with a, a really long history of, of racism. And in my perspective, you know, some people often say, you know, why look so far into the past when there are so many sort of current issues that could be addressed, current pieces of work that can be done. And I think Montgomery County has a, a very vibrant anti-racist community working on a lot of issues um, that are of current concern for sure. 
I think our work supports those by pointing to some historical instances, some historical roots um, that talk about just how far back communities have have been um, having conflict with one another, have failed to see one another, have failed to communicate with one another, um, and the ways in which um, you know groups of people, in particular Black people, were targeted. Um, at various points in Montgomery County's history. And we need to talk about that. We need to remember that. And we need to reconcile that as we continue to move forward. We're an extremely diverse county. We're extremely, we have some of the most diverse cities in the entire nation. Um, and so people look at Montgomery County and they say, wow, that's a really progressive place. Um, and it, And for my family, it's incredibly wonderful to live here. Uh, we love it very, very much. At the same time, there's a lot of work that we all still need to do together. And I think there are some really compelling stories um, from our history that help to underscore all of the work we need to continue to do if we want to appreciate the diversity of this community for all that it brings. Um, so that's just, that it feels really important. It's It's been awesome to get involved in that work. We have an incredible team of people on our steering committee um, in September, we put together a soil collection. So two projects that EJI um, supports coalitions in doing our soil collections and then putting up markers. And so our uh, county coalition has uh, hosted th three soil collections. Two of the soil collections were done um, at one event. And so um, we did a soil collection for Mr. George Peck in Poolsville. Um, and then this past September, we did uh, another soil collection for Mr. John Diggs Dorsey and Mr. Sidney Randolph, who um, were lynched in Rockville. And both of those events were really incredible. Um, have footage that we can share with people who are interested. They can find it online. Um, they were just opportunities for the community to come together to remember and honor the lives of these men and to commemorate the fact that in our county, they they were murdered. Um, as we move forward, we want to continue doing educational outreach. Um, we actually have uh, an event coming up pretty soon on March 3rd. Um, that's going to be a poetry event. Um, we have other future movie screenings planned. Um, and our goal this year is to put up a marker in Poolsville, again, in honor of, of Mr. George Peck. So it's, it's exciting to be a part of this work. Um, it can be heartbreaking at times, especially as the mother of a black boy, um, to to know that this is this is in our history, it's in our past. Um, but it also feels really encouraging to work with a racially diverse group of people um, on continuing to remember this past, to reconcile it, um, and to continue fostering conversations um, that that really encourage people to appreciate one another. Um. It seems like a really powerful approach to me to this. And this is, thank you for doing that work as a, someone who grew up in Montgomery County too, and was part of Montgomery County, Maryland's part of my life too, and has been a supportive place. And I, I think that there is, there's, there's a real need for this because I feel like there is a separation from that history in Montgomery County. I was not taught that in Montgomery County public schools, that history. Um, there is, a, I think, because we're north of south, we're not like we're in the middle of the country, but we're not, we're in a progressive place um, in many ways. 
And yet that separation feels dangerous. That separation, when people make that separation, when I do that from the his, my history, from the legacy of racism, uh, that feels like that feels uh, uh, like a step back from the the thing you mentioned at the beginning of we want to encourage dialogue and hearing each other's stories and space to hear that. I, I see this connection between that work of linking it to a physical place where we all live, linking it to here. I'm not saying it was over there; it was down south, it was up north, somewhere else, but it was here, and it wasn't that long ago. This is the spot. There's something about that strategy that just grabs me and it feels like makes it a reality. I feel, I feel the sadness in a different way and the impact of that. So that's just what a great way to honor those men who lost their lives and uh, that bring that history into the present. I think local history is really interesting and really important. And in education, sometimes we focus on national history you know we've got the u.s history course got the world history course and we argue about which regions of the world that we should learn about but how often are you studying it's only in the lower grades that they focus on sort of studying the neighborhood studying the block studying the city um and that really gets lost as children get older we sort of once they are developmentally able to think about far away and long ago that's sort of where we push them and we stop encouraging them to think about what's happening right here, right here. Um, and local history to me is, is a really cool way to engage students in, in how things matter to them and the impact that they can have. Right. Um, but also to, to give them a sense of community um, and community with people who, who did live a long time ago, but in the same place that they do today and to build that continuum. Um, of just really understanding how the seeds we sow, to bring it back to our garden, the seeds we sow today are going to be the fruit that we, that we can harvest tomorrow. And so we need right now to be super duper thoughtful about what seeds we are sowing, because that's going to impact the fruit that people can harvest in the future. I had a great conversation with Katya Stepanov, who you know from Inheritance Project, also came on the podcast. Yeah. And we talked about inherited gardens. We talked about how what are we inheriting in this garden, in, this, in the land? What history have we inherited collectively and individually? Each of us, it's unique in a way, and yet shared history too. Thinking on this land that I think that is, this lynching history is, is critical, the, the history of the indigenous people, to know the names of the people who lived on this land, know the tribes of where we lived. Uh, there's tools we can share to, anyone can look up what indigenous tribe was on their we can link that below, uh, what is on your local land below. That I think especially, for me as an adult, I feel it, but I think even for children of like thinking where I'm playing, where I'm digging, where I'm, where I'm living. Someone else was there before. Some things happened that are in this collective place, this field uh, that uh, you should know about. There's not, you're not too young to know about the, the, the bloody and challenging history that in these lands. I think, I, res I think children should know earlier and earlier we should be trusting children and being mindful like you are of telling stories in a way they can work with it. But we should be telling those stories and we should, as adults, I think it's uncomfortable for adults. I find it uncomfortable to talk about everything that I want to talk about with children. So actually that brings me to a question too around adults and parents talking to children about history, talking to children about things that make them uncomfortable. How have you worked with that and what would you offer to parents? Mm. 
I find it much easier to do this in the classroom than as a parent. <laughs> I'll be really honest. Um, I'm a parent of a seven-year-old and his take on mommy's efforts to teach him about history are, he just, he's not, <laughs> he's not interested um, all of the time. Um, and so I, I totally commiserate with the challenges families find. It's like, how do you have authentic conversations um, in your household about various histories? Sometimes it's easier to do with your own history. You might have family photos or different mementos or heirlooms that you can talk with children about. But then when you want to talk to them about other stories, how do you engage them, right? Um, there are amazing picture books um, and whether or not my son always wants me to read them to him at night, they're in his room where he can see them every single day about different aspects of history, primarily black history right now. We're really trying to build his understanding of our, our personal family culture, um, but also about other people and other places and other histories as well. So I think it's important to just have some of the physical materials in, in the home. Um, I think that can be really helpful. I think he sees us reading different adult books. Um, and we might say, oh, you know, this is what I'm reading about today. Or um, if we have the opportunity to sort of have a documentary on that feels appropriate. And um, that's something that's sort of in the background as he's playing. Um, that might be an opportunity. Going to museums. I uh, actually trained as a museum educator and I am so lucky to have lived in both New York and D.C., which has an incredible museum culture. And so we can definitely access different stories and histories by by going to the museum. Um, a real interest of his is is trains. And so thinking about the ways in which we can use trains to expose him to different parts of the world and different people in the world, um, to build his sense of time and like when different trains existed, um, and then figuring out how to start, you know, sliding in some of those stories, right? Um, if we want to talk about the Transcontinental Railroad and like how it was built and who built it and how that was impacted, that's a way for us to, to get into all sorts of aspects of American history. Um, and then certainly can start looking around the world at different train systems and just seeing where we can attach some of the, the pieces of history um, to his interests in trains. He actually had gotten a book about World War II. Uh, no, he had gotten a book about trains. And in the book about trains, there was a picture um, of people during World War II riding the train. And so all of a sudden he's reading a caption that includes some information about World War II. And that was an opportunity to talk about what, what that even meant. Um, but it was linked to his interest in trains. And so, again, I absolutely commiserate with, with families who are, are sort of thinking about, like, how do I do this in an authentic way that doesn't make it feel awkward or, or sort of like top down, but is really organically embedded in our family culture. And, and I think you have to be creative. Um, also thinking about um, what children are ready for. And each child is, is ready for different things at different times. Um, and and really answering the questions that they actually have, but not assuming that your child is definitely too young to learn about something, because that's not always the case. We want to meet them where they are, but not make too many assumptions about where they are. They can often be further ahead than we think. I like the way you're not 
making it all about your own agenda or parents. We might be feeling something as parents, re reacting to news in the world, but you're bringing this approach of empathy. What is your son interested in? He's interested in trains. Well, that's a lot of empathy. You know, that's observing and noticing. Let's follow this interest. And oh, wait, there's a great opportunity to tell. We can tell so much of American history through trains, through uh, cultural history. It could be told that way. And so it's a great opening for you without having an agenda. You know, as a parent, I'm not a parent, but I am a teacher. And, you know, there's, there is this strategic dance you're doing of, it sounds like as a parent, of meeting your child where they are without underestimating them. Um, and I think a lot of what I, I want to encourage adults to do is just it's, it's go meeting the children where they are with their curiosity of like, why are you reacting to that story, this news story that way? Why are you, why are you sad? Why are you, uh, why are things this way? They're going to like, their curiosity is abundant. So if we meet them in the curiosity and not from a, always from such a place of, of maybe of guilt of like, they really need to know about this. It's so important. I feel guilty if they don't know. That's probably not a great learning teaching uh, emotion to embody of your own guilt or your own um, uh, feeling of responsibility that uh, doesn't feel very organic or light to me, playful. So it, it seems like you've been- It, it you've rarely really, works. It rarely works. They're going to pick that up. That's not attractive to them or fun is your guilt. And so you're, you can bring that, you can bring that in, in another way. But I think that as a main motivation or spark around this, you can just take some patience too. An observation is what I'm hearing. Yeah. And, and you have to genuinely care about it too, yes. right? Like in so many ways, what they can sense is inauthenticity. Yes. Like, why are you bringing this up? I've never heard you talk about this. I've never seen you care about this. So I think it's about the conversations that are going on in your home between you and your partner or you and other family members. Like, what do they hear you talking about in authentic ways? And if you personally are not interested or invested or active, it's really hard to bring that up with kids. But if you are talking about a museum exhibit you just saw or some art that you just encountered or podcast that you just heard, and all of that is just in the atmosphere, um, the child's going to feel that wherever that conversation is coming from is a much more authentic place. And I just find that typically the children whose families talk about these things often, um, it is very organic. It is very authentic. It's sort of just percolating in the air of their home and their family has just sort of found routines and ways of infusing the environment with that that kind of information and that kind of dialogue um, but I think it, it has to come from an authentically interested place on on the perspective from of the adults um, for the child to to then perceive it as like something like oh well, let me my parents are always talking about that right they're always listening to NPR they're always watching like listening to these podcasts they're always watching these documentaries um, those kids tend to develop like an authentic interest in the things that are just always kind of going on in their home. I think that's right on too, and going with your own interest and cultivating your own yourself is the best way to cultivate yourself as a parent as a teacher. Growing yourself. Yes. So brings us back to the beginning yes. of this conversation too around teaching as a lifestyle too. So I feel full circle on that. We talked about the past and looking backward. You also do some really beautiful future thinking ahead, uh, looking ahead. And I mentioned the blog you wrote about Kwanzaa and Afrofuturism. And so I want to ask you about the future. And you wrote in your blog, Kwanzaa was created out of the ashes of the Watts riot rebellion as a framework for building strong black communities that could resiliently pursue economic, political, and social change. It is centered around our children 
and instilling in them a sense of identity and pride. Each principle is a call to action. They represent the tools we need to manifest the future we deserve. They are an opportunity to gather, to generate the energy of the collective, and to cast our eyes forward at the same time in solidarity, community, and spiritual kinship. We cannot build together what we cannot imagine together. Love that last line in particular. We cannot build together what we cannot imagine together. So I just want to, I was inspired reading that mm. passage, and I'd love to just hear maybe some more on that too, about how, that's, how you're carrying that really positive message of solidarity into the future. Yeah. So I am not a person who, you know, grew up loving science fiction um, or even fantasy. I've always been a much more like I'm interested in realistic fiction or historical fiction. Um, but lately I find myself and and I don't know if this is just as I've gotten older or as I've realized that like I'm one of the adultier adults that are around these days <laughs> or that, you know, one day I'm going to be an elder. Um, but definitely since becoming a parent, just sort of seeing that I am, again, I'm sowing seeds that will exist. And I, and I think when I think about the future, it underscores for me the things I need to be doing now. And I think I think about the future in a way that is not about kind of escaping the present moment, escaping the present reality, but that is about informing myself, envisioning what I want to be in the future so that I do the things that I, that I sort of enable the causes and conditions. Um, I've been doing a lot of mindfulness and Buddhist study lately, um, especially this past year, but sort of that I'm enabling the causes and conditions so that the future that I want, that I envision for my son and for his friends and for my students, that that can exist. Because if we don't start that process now, um, it won't happen. And I think a lot of times when we talk about the future, we, we have this sort of burden mentality of like, it's going to be taken care of in the future by them, not us. We have nothing to do with it or it's too late. We're powerless. That's already on its way. Um, and I think we have to, to one, sort of hold ourselves more accountable for what the future will be like, um, the things that we are doing right now in terms of how we uh, interact with the planet and how we interact with each other, it does matter and it is going to have an impact. And the changes that I make today can shift the future, even if ever so slightly. Um, I think I have to believe that to to maintain hope. You know, we talked about how right now, today, there is a lot going on. Um, there's a lot going on on the, on the global stage and it's scary. It's scary. Um, we have to maintain hope. How do we maintain hope? We look to the future. We try to see what could be possible and we come right back to today and say, okay, what is one action? What is one thing? What is one conversation? What is one way that I can even make the tiniest shift um, in my own life, in my own sphere of influence, so that I'm planting a seed that can be harvested tomorrow. Um, I think we have to to keep that hope together. Um, we have to keep that hope brewing. We have to keep that hope alive. Um, otherwise, it, it all feels really bleak. And And I don't think you can work with children and be bleak. They are not having that. They want a bright future for themselves. 
They want to know what they can do to make a bright future for themselves. And increasingly, they want to know what you adults are doing to make the bright future bright for themselves. Um, they are about, they are holding us accountable. Um, and, and we should hold ourselves accountable too. So I, I think that's how I think about it. And, you know, Kwanzaa happens at a particular time of year, but I really feel those principles um, are guiding lights for me all year all year long and just opportunities to look around and say, where are my, where, where can my, where can I act today? In, in what area can I act today? I can't do everything every single day, but every day I can do something. Um, and I, and I feel inspired by that. I feel inspired by everything you just said. And I'm really grateful to have had this conversation with you today. And I, I agree the children deserve a bright future. And uh, I'm just honoring the work you're doing to bring that to children, your own child and others through your stories. I'd love to, um, I feel like there's so much more I want to talk to you about. I'd love to maybe do a part two. I mentioned uh, after I read the book when it comes out and also we didn't get to talk about mindfulness. I also share a real interest and passion in mindfulness too, and to talk about just our studies into that would be really inspiring to me. But I want to check in too and see if there's anything else you wanted to add to the conversation before we wrap up today. Hmm. Nothing more I want to add necessarily, just that it um, it is so good to have this conversation. Even having this conversation has been a deep form of reflection to me, and I'm really grateful for it. And I'm really grateful for the ways in which you so authentically move through the world and you keep pulling me in <laughs> to, to different projects that you're doing. And every single time I am so touched and and fed by their authenticity. You're like one of the most sincere people I've ever met. And I'm excited that you're putting this project out into the world um, and doing your thing. It's very exciting. Thank you. And yeah, I love the way we've collaborated in the past. We've done more than I mentioned even, and you've been a bridge builder for <laughs> me, connecting me to Tony Cohen, who's coming on the podcast uh, in the spring. So we've, I've been talking to Tony and yeah. that's a Leslie Young connection. So look, uh, listen, Look out for that one audience of the amazing story from Tony who runs uh, the Button Farm Living History Center, which really creates the experience of what it was like to be a slave in Montgomery County and growing, working on land and the uh, Underground Railroad. And so I, I love talking to Tony, amazing storyteller. And that's just an ex one example of the way Leslie builds bridges in communities and brings the right people together and opens up possibilities for all different kinds of humans, including uh, of all ages and uh, backgrounds. So Leslie, you've been a real, a real gift to me, our friendship. And I'm, 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 I'm high from this conversation. Same, same. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming so good. on. So good. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It was really great to talk with you. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Leslie Young. Please do check out her writing and her work. I'll share her website below. Also listen to the episodes, other episodes I mentioned too. If you've really enjoyed this one, um, highly recommend the episode I mentioned with Tony Cohen coming up and also with Katya Stepanov on the Inheritance Project around storytelling uh, as a way uh, to bring more inclusion and understanding to our communities. I really recommend that one. And we'll definitely share an update when Leslie's book comes out on our social media. So follow us there. Make sure to follow her work everywhere also below. Uh, if you have any comments or questions on this episode, please do comment on YouTube. In the comments below will get back to you. 
Also, you can write us a, a message if you want to have any kind of private communication. Feel free to email us at foregardenspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening and keep on growing.